I'm Chris Riley, editor of Sweet Code and founder of Fixate. I just so happen to like food and software, so I'm going to connect with developers and engineers at their favorite places to eat and chat about what it's like to build modern applications. This is Developers Eating the World. All right, so this is episode six of Developers Eating the World, which I think is a milestone. Um, after getting after episode five, yeah. <laughs> so now it's a now it's a thing, um, and we are at the Hyatt Regency in Seattle at ChefConf, um, which is a really fun conference put on by Chef. Um, and I'm sitting down with Domith. Um, Domith, why don't you tell me just briefly about your role in your company? Um, yeah, sure. So uh, the company I work for is called Indelient, and uh, we're a professional service provider. Uh, we have a few different lines of business. Um, but my role specifically focuses on the area of DevOps. So I oversee our DevOps line of business and working with customers and partners to deliver DevOps solutions. And uh, Domith has VIP access at the Hyatt, so we're in the uh, VIP lounge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the funny things that came up at this show already, I think it's probably only funny to me, but we talked about it yesterday, was the uh, fact that I feel like it's politically incorrect to call an application legacy anymore. It's heritage now. <laughs> yeah, you have yeah. to call them heritage applications. So yeah. if you're listening, make sure you don't make that mistake. Um, but that's a really big problem, right? Like the, yeah, like the whole concept of these heritage applications and how you manage them, right? And in DevOps, we tend to focus a lot on you know where we want to go and not where we are today. but most of our, the businesses today still run um, on the heritage apps. So why don't they just get rid of them? It's, it's not that easy, right? Like that's gonna be getting rid of like the uh, lifeline for a lot of these businesses. And then you can talk about, well, maybe you rewrite them, right? Um, but then what's the cost there? And like, is there actually any ROI in rewriting these apps in a more modern architecture? Um, but you still have to manage these apps. So how do you fix that pain while you're trying to modernize the rest of your organization? Yeah, it blows my mind. Have you heard of Zoe or ZOS? So IBM has ZOS. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of basically a way to interface from the main frame, frame applications yeah. with modern applications. So people are even investing in building tooling around working with heritage. Yeah. And um, you know, and, and what, you know, being at ChefConf here um, in Seattle, like one, one of the big focuses here is um, Chef Habitat and what right. that means for the world of these heritage yeah, applications. Yeah, you said right? that you guys have done, so when Habitat came out, you know, I, I never knew about Habitat, which is um, Chef CICD um, release automation tooling, but I hadn't heard about any implementations yet. But yeah. you guys are actually doing implementations. We, we are actually doing implementations, and CI/CD um, that's offered by Habitat and the Builder Depot that Chef creates. It's just part of the equation. Which right? Builder Depot? So B Builder Depot is um, when you create a Habitat uh, wrapped application or package. Uh -huh. That's like the artifact repository, um, but that also will handle your builds. Got it. Um, now you can also interface your own CI/CD on top of that if you're bringing it on-prem in the enterprise. So in Habitat, um, do do the packages include the uh, cookbook and the code? How did, how does that work? Um, it can. And so one of the things you saw yesterday was one of the newer models, and it's something we've been working with for about a year. Um, it's more of the 
habitat managed chef model is what we're really referring to it as. And that's where, you know, like the chef client, it's just another application that runs on your servers, right? Right. And so Habitat actually manages that as an application and it also manages things oh. like inspect and compliance profiles as an application. So Habitat goes into production then also? Yes. Like as kind of a management tool? It I does. didn't know that. Yeah. It, it does give you management capabilities over your applications and you know, one of the great things you know, when we're talking about these heritage apps with Habitat is it's about taking some of these legacy apps and just rewrapping them and making them feel more modern so you can deploy them in a more modern way and you can go to containers if the app supports it but not all apps will support going to containers or to kubernetes but then you can deploy it onto just a standard vm and it won't run as a container right. but it'll still run in an isolated environment that gives you all the benefits of the modern application lifecycle management so i'm glad you said kubernetes because i'm wondering you know, where does infrastructure as code fit in a Kubernetes world? Great, great question. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, Kubernetes has to run on something, right? It's running on a server somewhere, whether, you know, let's say you're using like um, Amazon or like uh, GCP and you're using their uh, hosted Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. In that world, it would be Amazon and Google's responsibility to manage right. that underlying infrastructure. So mm -hmm. they would be the people doing the infrastructure's code bit. But in the world, like let's say if you have your own data center and you're spinning up Kubernetes, well that Kubernetes is probably gonna live on a VM. Isn't it crazy that people are talking about on-prem and like hybrid cloud and private cloud? That's all, that's still very much a thing. It is. And, and we all wanted to pretend like it was going away. Well, and I think the where we'll end is a world where it is hybrid. I think there'll always be organizations um, that will have on-prem uh, infrastructure, but I don't think they'll have just on-prem infrastructure. They'll be across one, maybe multiple clouds, depending on what the purpose is for the using a specific cloud. Right. Yeah, which is another common term now, multi-cloud. Yeah, yeah, and you know, from my perspective, we've heard a lot about multi-cloud, and usually a organization has a one preferred cloud, but they are having pieces going to a different cloud as well, and there's a variety of reasons for doing that. So I, um, tell me more about Habitat. So mm -hmm. what, what do you think makes, it sounds like the administration management layer makes it unique, but what, what do you think makes it unique compared to Jenkins and, you know, yeah, well, Jenkins kind of the ubiquitous, but all the other release automation tools out there? Yeah, so Habitat can work with all of those, right? Oh. So Habitat is really, like when you look at like what are the core like value propositions of Habitat, it's not necessarily the CI/CD. It's really about how do you package and manage hmm. applications kind of in a modern Adam way. Said, Adam said yesterday when he was thinking about like the divide between infrastructure and apps, mm -hmm. and maybe that's what he meant. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where you know the lines get blurry as well with like Habitat, and it's just like, well, why not just use Chef Cookbooks to configure these apps, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a reason people have been using Chef Cookbooks, right? For the longest time, you know, you can choose your flavor of configuration management tool, right? It doesn't have to be Chef, it could be any of them. Um, but they've been using these configuration management tools because there hasn't been a better way to package and manage your applications. And so, you know, good on everybody for making the best out of the tools they had, right? And now, when you look at, you know, how do you manage legacy or COTS applications? Heritage. Heritage, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or, 
And how do you even uh, tackle like complex clustered applications, right? Like take uh, MS SQL, high availability, always on clusters and things like that, where you do have to orchestrate a lot of different pieces. And it's not just about setting up a single server or single app and you're done, right? And so when you look at configuration management tools and how you manage these types of apps, it could get really, really hairy. And that's really where things like Habitat come into their own, is it does really help you with the application lifecycle and understanding application discover, discovery as well as like application dependencies and how they all flow from you know, local dev through all your environments consistently to production. So you have that one artifact moving through helping do all the orchestration for your apps. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So um, along the same lines of Kubernetes, you know, <laughs> we always talk about these evolutions of technologies yeah. and everybody's on the Kubernetes bandwagon right now, but we're getting close to the serverless bandwagon. Yep. And, and now there's even serverless for Kubernetes. You had Kubeless yeah. and now you have Fission and a few others. What are your thoughts on serverless? I think there's some great uh, upsides to serverless, right? Like I think it really depends on, one, does it meet your application's requirements? Can the serverless give you the performance and like system requirements you need? Um, I think sometimes it can, I think sometimes it can't, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So I think it's never really, do I move everything to serverless? Do I move it to Kubernetes? It's yeah. like, that you'll probably in your um, uh, application estate have pieces of all of that, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be exactly a repeat of the microservices problem where people start thinking, "Oh, we need to we need to, you know, make our entire application microservices." But then they quickly realize, "Well, this means that we have to also re-architect our application because yeah. you can't just go to serverless. Like you have to be 100% API focused yeah. to be serverless." And which doesn't work with it, most heritage applications cuz exactly. most heritage applications yeah, and don't, you still need those heritage have applications. That. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the key there is when you talk about things like you know, serverless, Kubernetes, am I going to run on just still VMs? Um, the, the key is not where you run. I think it's, part of it's also how you get there. Because when you talk about all these different platforms, if you have different ways to deliver code to all these different platforms at scale, that's going to be a nightmare. You may be able to do that within a team. But if you're going to try to do that across an enterprise, that's yeah. going to be a challenge, that's right? And so I think before you know, saying we're going to consume all these different technologies at the one end, it's really important to think about how is your code going to get there and can you really limit the paths to either like one path to get to production and that decision of where your code goes is made right at the end? Or can you even say there's a few paths, but you don't want to have too many paths to production, otherwise it's going to be unmanageable. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess I think you said that in the DevOps.com media booth as well, where like, you can't just you can't 100% forecast the future scale, you but you have to be willing to accept that the scale that you're dealing with right now is not going to be the scale in the future. Right, and and that's where I think you know the way of thinking with Habitat really comes into play, because when you package something up with Habitat. You don't have to make that decision till the very last minute. So you know, if you package it up, you can say, okay, I'm going to export to a container. Yeah. Or then you can be like, I'm just going to run on a VM. And that's fine, right? And it'll work the exact same way. And so that's really going to come when you talk about serverless as well. Just go serverless, but try not to make that decision all the way up front, because if you do, then you're probably going to start orchestrating building pipelines for that specific process, and that, then you're going to uh, get many, many different pipelines you have to manage. Yeah. 
That makes sense. So I want to now let's talk about the fluffy stuff because okay. um, you encounter a lot of customers, and I know what it's like to have bad customers. It's hell. <laughs> but in the DevOps world, you know anybody who's in services at some point is is somewhat of a counselor. Like you already know the best path. Like you you kind of have a vision and. And especially in DevOps, when we always throw around this culture word, which you know is legitimate, but also very frustrating, because at some point you're like, do we even want to help companies who have not embraced the yeah. idea that they have to work together? Well, and you know, I, I think the answer is yes, right? We do want to help those companies because there is good things we can always do. And I think you know, as humans, I think we always try to put ourselves in silos. So that gets really hard to get those cross-functional teams going at times. But I think it's really important um, at times not to be too idealistic. Has there been a point? Oh, well, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have to meet, I think, organizations where they're at. Where they're at. Really yeah. understand their pain and not solve all the world's problems in one day. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, that we're very guilty of that, especially you know, when you're obsessed with automation, you want everything to be black and white and turnkey. And it's, it's easy <laughs> to get sucked in, right? It's really easy to get sucked in, but you gotta kind of take a step back at times. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's not a fun, <laughs> not a fun uh, problem to have to face. No, no, and, and the thing is, like, no matter what customer, like you said, you know, you have good customers and bad customers. All customers have cultural challenges, right? And there, there's cultural challenges, process, people. I think people's one of the toughest ones. Um, that sometimes yeah. get underlooked uh, or overlooked, sorry. Um, and it's really about training the people up, getting the skills, but then also retaining staff. Like we've seen it where people will come in to an organization, we'll be working with them for eight or nine months, getting them skilled up so they can run um, a lot of this stuff internally, right? Because like for us, that's the measure of success. Like if we're in there all the time and doing the work, we're not doing you justice and you're not gonna be successful, yeah. right? You have to be able to do it yourself. But what we see occasionally is that these people after eight or nine months leave because they got skilled up, now they go to a higher paying oh, job, wow. right? <laughs> so that is a really, really, that's a really hard thing for organizations to deal with right oh, now. Oh yeah, I bet, yeah. yeah. Yeah, even in our business, I mean, it, it, actually for us, there's a point where if we can't make you understand you know, what the world needs in terms of like good technical content, then we're not gonna work with you. Like we have no choice, but I think in the tech field, it's it's different, but we've had to fire clients just because they don't get it. Right. Like, and we're not, and we, we can't afford to spend time trying to explain it to them. Right. Yeah, um, yeah that's cool. So what do you think about the world of open source now? Like why, why, why suddenly have enterprises at what point in time did enterprises go, oh, it's okay to have open source? I feel like it happened overnight, and I don't know when that was. Um, I want to put a date on it. I, I don't, yeah, uh, it, it feels that way. I don't think it happened overnight. I think it happened over, you know, a good decade. And I think it started with um, programming languages, right? And like adopting more open SD, yeah. like okay. uh, things like OpenJDK, and like that's where I think some of the adoption really began versus just the straight off. So once they were in, they yeah. kind of had to kind of had to keep on rolling with well, it. Well, yeah, and then just it just evolved from there and now you're adopting more open platforms and then I think the cloud really became big with AWS and there was a lot of open stuff there and people were like, "Hey, we can take advantage of this." And so I think all this like came together. So there was like different pieces in the environment or the ecosystem 
that people were dabbling with, but then they all started to come together, and now everyone's like, open source is great. Yeah. And, and, and open source is great, right? Because it gives opportunity for people to try things before committing, because otherwise, like you'd go through this enterprise sales cycle, you think you know what you're getting, and you think it has all the features, but you may not know like all at the, the end of the day, you don't know the end of the day, right? right? And so now you can really run things through your processes and make sure they fit your organization's needs. And at the end of the day, open store still results a lot of the time in licensing and maintenance, and because um, these enterprises. Yeah, I mean, is that true though? Like, does it because Chef is super committed to open source as well? Yeah. Now, I mean, all open source. Like, does it generally? I think yeah, for for like large enterprises and organizations of that nature. They want the assurances. But yeah, yeah, but you have to go enterprise. Like, if you're going to do that business model, you have to go enterprise. That's the only way yeah. to make money. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Because, I mean, there's a ton of, like, CNCF has a new project every, I don't know, month or so, it feels like. And, you know, they're, they're small. They have that open source business model, and a lot of people can't make it happen. Yeah. And the, the other piece of open source, though, is... Um, a lot of companies, and you see uh, Chef Software doing this as well, and I think it's a really good way to go, is um, the subscription services, right? So things like Chef curates compliance profiles, um, and there's various other material they'll be delivering as well through their um, subscription model. And so if you want those assets which are created, tested, and proved out by Chef, you still have to go with their subscription model to get those, right? Right. And if you try to create those compliance profiles yourselves, you can do it using like Chef Inspec. Um, it's just how much time and effort will it take to create them and then maintain them going forward, right? Yeah, and there's, just like the services business, it's nice to be able to blame somebody. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so besides uh, Habitat and Chef, obviously, um, what is some other tooling that you've been really excited about lately? Um, other tooling, I think, you know, a lot of the hosted services in the cloud, I think they're really taking off right now. Things like um, Kubernetes, like, and serverless. So I think they've been around for a while. I think they're really starting to move a lot more. Um, What's your favorite public cloud? Oh, that's a tough one. I, so <laughs> I'm an Azure fan. I'll just I'll straight yeah. up admit it. So we we've done a lot of work. And they don't, by the way, they don't sponsor. So <laughs> don't don't yeah. come after me for that. So. We've, uh, we've done a lot of work with um, AWS. Uh -huh. So I'm not sure if that's my favorite. I'd say that's where we've done a lot of work. Right. Um, I think, you know, when, and like when you talk about favorite clouds or the different clouds, I think they do offer different things. And this is where I think when you talk about multi-cloud and like what's your multi-cloud strategy, it, I think it really depends on what you're trying to get out of the clouds. Like there's things like um, BigQuery or like if you want to use some of uh, AWS's machine learning even, um, those are very specific functions of those clouds you may leverage, right? And so we've seen that where organizations will use a specific cloud for a specific function or feature, usually like in the machine learning AI space that they have, like even if you look at IBM's cloud, right? They offer some of the Watson technology. So if that's something you need for your business, that could be a reason. I feel that. like you just justify cloud brokers, which I thought was the most ridiculous business in the world. And there's like four of them out there. Yeah. But maybe, maybe it's true. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, you I, have these a la carte like menus, like how do you know what's the right thing, one for your, that's a lot of vetting. Well, it really comes down to the business, right? Like the technology piece is fun, 
but it's like, what does the, is the business trying to get out of it? Like, what's the ROI for the business at the end yeah. of the day? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, um, one of the other big things that I've noticed in the DevOps space is people don't know, people don't have a good sense if they're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't think they know how to measure success right. correctly. And I don't know if that's an artifact of it being new, or if it's an artifact of paying attention to the wrong things. Like, obviously, release velocity. Everybody tells yeah. me release velocity. I get it, but what if you're releasing bad code fast? Yeah, well, that, that's exactly it, right? And I think sometimes, um, well, it's really easy to get just enamored by technology. And then you lose sight of like, what are you trying to measure and like, how do you prove something successful? Because now you're like dealing with the fun stuff. It's like, let's like tinker and like get all this stuff working, right? Um, but before going into these uh, engagements, I think it's really important to understand like, where's the pain? Why is it painful? Who does the pain imp- impact? And can we quantify that? I think some people, it's really easy to say, this is our pain, this is who it impacts. But when you ask the quantification question, sometimes people just stop and they're just like, uh, I'm not sure, yeah. right? We know it's not good, but like, what is not good? And like, what is good, right? Because if you don't know what not good is and you don't know what good is, like, it's really hard to measure success. So is there any like, sta- there, are there standards or? Um, there, there, commonalities and I think this is, this is where it's hard, right? I don't think there's clear cut standards. And I think one of the things when we were chatting yesterday I said is like, we want to get to a point, I think everybody does, where you have one path to production, you commit code in dev, it goes through automated testing, regression testing, and then like it goes to like QA, does more automated testing, maybe hit stage and goes to prod, right? If that's like your environment flow, whatever it is, like we want to get there and that's great. but. And if that's a measure of your success, fine. But I think for a lot of organizations, like it could be, well, this is taking me, you know, three, four months to get out. Like a release takes me that long. And that's about, okay, why does a release take you that long? Because some of it's going to be technology based. Some of it's going to be people on process based. And so those are two different challenges, but they all accumulate into this one big challenge of my code's just not getting out, right? And so I think it's really important to break that problem down and then determine like how can you solve these problems and like what's the order because the people process piece may take a bit longer and like can you show some wins that may not be you know going from x months down to weeks but it could be a good enough win where you can say hey this is working and then get more leverage to have those people process conversations yeah if i were in your role i would just Ask my customer to give me the right to fire people. <laughs> I wish it was that easy, but sometimes they don't have to, right? Because sometimes people just jump ship anyways. Like well, we were talking about that's earlier. That's true. I mean, maybe yeah. you ratchet up the pressure so much that they bail. I, uh, sometimes yeah. people suck way too much. Well, yeah, and I, and I think it's because you're changing the, or you're trying to change the way people have done their job for a long time, right? And, you know, it's, it's challenging. And so I think, it's, you have a lot of sympathy. Empathy. Yeah, it's empathy. That's and good it's, for you. I, it's it's I'm really done. important. To, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really important to figure out what the best way is to work with every organization because they're all different. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and you. I mean, you want to see you want to see quick wins, I assume, and you know, get to the next. Because, as is true, when I was a SharePoint consultant. Um, people were always the biggest problem, but the only kind of workaround was, the hack there was find the naysayer, build a quick win with them, let them own it, (laughs) kind of give them credit. Yeah, Yeah, and and like people aren't 
trying to be bad and just get in the way for the sake of getting in the way, right? I think, ah, I, don't I, I think it's really like if you can take the time to understand like where they're coming from and why, why their view is that view, um, I think you can make some headway there, right? So I think you can definitely, you know, work with people to go through these transformations. And that's why I always say, you know, Technology is great, but it's people, process, culture, technology problem right. when you go into DevOps. Yeah, well that's that's why you're good at your job <laughs> and I'm not doing it. Yeah. Um, well, Dominic, thanks for your time. I think, um, you know, episode six, that's a huge milestone for me in, <laughs> in yeah. doing Developers Eating the World. Thanks for the special access to the VIP lounge. Oh, anytime. And, uh, you know, I look forward to chatting again and seeing also what you guys end up building because you're building a product as well. We are. We, we are building a product to help with some of that meshing of the process and culture with the oh. technology, right? And it's really about providing visualizations and um, optics into the delivery process. So you have all these great technologies like the ones from Chef, and then we are helping becoming the delivery mechanism for those technologies to get you through the production and orchestrate that. And you're also not paying me money, right? <laughs> I Just wish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish too. No, I... Um, you know, it's always funny when you do things like this, like you can get beat up for the sponsorship, but we have zero sponsors right now. And the reason I want to talk to you is because you are, I mean, every system integrator out there gets to see like all the different types of integrations, yeah. all the different types of environments and, you know, the varieties across because companies get wrapped up thinking that they're unique um, and you get to see all the similarities. So it's, it's very good. Also, your implement, you know, what you've done with Habitat is great because it's the first hey, I've hey. heard about implementation yeah. of it's, habitat. It's one of the, I think, biggest habitat implementations uh, period that we've been engaged nice. in. So it, it's been really good. And so we've done a handful now over the last year. And I uh, know it's been great. Great. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah.